uh, Hosea chapter 5. So go ahead and turn to Hosea 5. Uh, this is lesson number 8 in our series in Hosea. And uh, by the way, just in case I forget, today is our last Sunday together for Bible study through the end of the year. So for the next two Sundays, we'll have uh, our worship service only on Sunday morning, and it starts a half an hour early. So it's at 10 o'clock the next two weeks, uh, which will hopefully take a little bit of uh, stress off the, um, just the, uh, the, the, the time for the day. We know people have a lot of things planned, so worship service only. Next Sunday, of course, we'll have our evening service back at 5. Uh, so we'll have 10 o'clock in the morning and then 5, and then the, the Sunday following that, just the 10 o'clock service in the morning. And then the next Sunday and into the new year, we'll get back, uh, we'll be back together for, uh, for Bible study or uh, Sunday school. So, all right, so lesson 8, uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 5. And just a reminder, we pointed out last time the fact that Hosea is divided into two, two main parts, uh, and that major... The major division in the book falls between chapters, uh, chapters three and four. So we've kind of put this up there, um, just to sort of keep keep that in our mind. Sort of this big picture. This first three chapters really dealing with mainly with Hosea and his family situation, uh, his marriage. Uh, just sort of as uh, an as an illustration. Uh, of the Lord's relationship to Israel, and then the, the thing, what's going to be coming after that, it begins in chapter 4, verse 1, the message, uh, sort of the exposition of Hosea, and, and how Hosea's own marriage and family sort of uh, serve as this platform for these, this message, both of judgment and condemnation, but also of hope and restoration. We'll see that as we, as we go through. So we, as we started into this second major section from chapter 4, really through chapter 14, we said there were two primary things that change uh, when we get to this point in the book. One is that we do go from this sort of private private pageant, this uh, uh, sort of private look at Hosea's life into his public preaching. Uh, so we have in this, if you want to call it episode one, this sermon acted out in episode two, beginning in uh, chapter four. Uh, this is a sermon spoken uh, or an anthology of Hosea's preaching or prophecies. So that's one transition. The other that we mentioned is just the rhythm of the book. We've had this sort of bad news, good news uh, cycle that we've seen time and time again in those first three chapters, very rapid fire. You know, uh, bad news is coming, judgment's coming, these indictments against God's people, and then uh, quickly followed up by uh, verses and pas- pas- passages that deal with, with hope. Um, and so that came pretty quickly in those early chapters, but what's going to happen uh, and has already in chapter 4 is this is really going to slow down. And so we're going to be in uh, this sort of theme, if you will, of judgment for uh, several weeks before we get to any uh, sort of lengthy uh, declaration about God's plans to, to restore and sort of that message of hope. Uh, so we have this sort of Darkness, if, if you will, We're, we've already seen some of that in chapter four. As the Lord uh, portrayed Himself as a sort of a prosecuting attorney, uh, indicting His people uh, for their both violations of, of covenant and the ways that they've they sin against the Lord, but in a very personal way because it's it's, it's really it's viewed as betrayal. It's very it's very personal. 
thing. I had a conversation with somebody this week that was talking about uh, they were in a work a work uh, situation where uh, some people were lying to them and deceiving them, and uh, when when they were the people were sort of confronted about that. The th- one of the things that struck this individual is that they they were seemed to be more concerned about the fact that they just they lied or they took what they took, but they really weren't grasping the fact that, that the relational dynamic. It was like, well, I'm sorry that I did this thing, instead of sort of like, I'm sorry that I betrayed your trust and 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 this has damaged and hurt our relationship. And so, for this individual, that actually for them was like they were questioning the sincerity, really, of the repentance on, the, on that person's part because they were really just looking at it as a sort of infraction. Uh, they crossed the line in this way, but they really weren't dealing with the way in which that impacts how we relate to one another. So uh, the Lord is, is bringing this, these indictments against his people. Again, it's not just about them uh, breaking his standard. It is about very very personal uh, violation and, and betrayal against him. And then he comes as judge and jury, really sentencing them for, for these uh, actions on their part. We left off last week with this chilling sort of assessment by the Lord in verse 17. This is of chapter 4. You'll notice there he says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. And so the Lord is basically saying here that Ephraim is joined in the sense, he actually uses a word for, for adhering or gluing. He's saying that, that Ephraim is glued to their idols. They are bound to their idols, which leads to this divine pronouncement, let him alone. And it's really, it's, it's like an Old Testament illustration of Romans 1 and God sort of handing them over. Uh, you may be familiar with that passage in, in Romans 1. It's certainly a uh, describes a lot of what's what is going on in our culture today. It's this this sort of cycle. In Romans 1, Paul talks about the wrath of God being revealed there in verse 18. And then as a consequence, God gives them over to sexual immorality. Verse 24, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Then he gives them over to homosexuality. Romans 1, 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. And then ultimately to a reprobate mind. In verse 28, God gave them over to he calls a, a, the New American Standard a depraved mind, or you might even say a mind that doesn't work. <laughs> it's like, um, it's not so much about uh, being l- sort of a, a lewd and filthy. It really is just the concept of it ain't working right. Like their mind does not think rightly. Everything's upside down, right? They think that this thing's right and it's actually wrong, and they think that this thing's wrong and it's actually right. They completely lose their, their bearings, Right, they get completely in a way. It's like spiritually and mentally disoriented, and so this is played out. Right, I mean, this is played out in our nation. We've seen this in the '60s and '70s with the sexual revolution, and then the homosexual revolution in the '80s and into the '90s. This increased acceptance of of fornication and homosexuality and different alternative but sinful forms of sexuality, and then what we're dealing with now is actually a denial of who we actually are, male and female. I mean, that, that's, that's where our culture is. And, and then we've got, you know, I said there's uh, now just the, the creation of, of laws to protect that kind of insanity. I mean, we're saying 
we, we are insane and we want to have laws to protect our insanity. <laughs> that's, that's a depraved mind. I mean, that's what we, we see played out in, in really the last two decades, uh, this sort of plan to create a unisex society uh, in our country. And it's as if the Lord is just saying, if you want those wretched things, you can have them. You know? And so we see it in our own society. I'm just saying that's the dynamic that was going on in Israel at the time of Hosea. That when the Lord says Ephraim is joined to idols, and you, know, and you, you can go to Romans 1. Romans 1 is about idolatry, right? Because he talks about exchanging the glory of God for the glory of the creation. Well, that's, that, is, that's, that is what idolatry is about. And so in Hosea's day, looked a little different than this, but essentially that dynamic was playing out in the sense that God was saying, if you want those things, you can have those things. And that's why I think he just says, let them alone. You know, he, he's, he's, Ephraim is glued to these things, and we're just going to let that go on, right? But again, and we mentioned this last time, be, be careful about the boomerang effect of that, right? Because you say you want that, and then you go after that, but we know the futility of that, right? We know the, the vanity of that and the pain of that and the suffering that comes. Um, and so we'll see that boomerang effect come into play uh, throughout, throughout these, these chapters. This uh, sort of Israel going after what they want, never being satisfied, always wanting sort of this wanting more in a sense because they have this insatiable appetite, but then they... Are, it's like they're, in, they're shooting themselves in the foot. They're, like, they're inflicting pain on themselves, but yet they keep, you know, it's like that commercial about the banging the head against, you know, they're saying about the Geico commercial, or it's like yeah. the people that like to hit their head and the, and the person's just like <laughs> hitting their head, or the, the lady's pouring the coffee, you know, like, you know, these people that enjoy pour, pouring coffee on themselves and the lady's just laughing and just pouring hot coffee all over herself. <laughs> It's like, that's the insanity of what's going on. They're hurting themselves, but they just keep doing it. What's that? Direct TV, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> I ought to get my facts straight. Yeah, sorry about that. That was off the cuff, Matt. Sorry about that. And to give credit, give credit. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. That's right. Yep. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. And it's, sometimes it's years before the, that that boomerang effect. You can see it. You know, I mean, people can go for 10, 20 years in their sin and, and they don't, they, they think everything's fine. And then all of a sudden it just comes crashing down uh, very, very quickly sometimes. So we'll actually see this. There's a point in our chapter today where there is a sense of self-awareness where the people of Israel see the inflicted, they see the wounds of their own sin, but they make the wrong decision. Because the Lord, think about it, the Lord has the, has the right, right? He has the freedom and the right to allow us to continue in that stubborn idolatry and disobedience. And 
not even show it to us, like not even give us a sense of what's going on in our lives. But sometimes the Lord graciously does do that, right? He actually shows us the futility of what we're doing, and that's a key point, right? I mean, that's a key intersection. When the Lord begins to show you the futility of your life and your sin, then you've got to make a decision. Are you going to continue with the light of that knowledge now, right? You've been shown that. Are you just going to keep doing it, or are you going to repent? And we'll see the choice that Israel uh, makes when that happens. So he just says, listen, they're going to go after their depravity, but God's judgment will come, and it will take a spiritual tornado of sorts to turn them away from their pagan practices to the Lord in true worship. So let me read for us chapter 5, and then we'll kind of go back through and walk sort of verse by verse through this. It starts out with hear this, which is the same imperative back in chapter 4, verse 1. We mentioned that last time given to all the people who were going to be brought before the divine bar of God's justice. And this is a New American Standard, um, uh, Hosea 5, 1. Hear this, O priest, give heed, O house of Israel, listen, O house of the king, for the, for the, for the judgment applies to you, for you have, have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel's not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and herds to, to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound an alarm at beth behind you, Benjamin. Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. Therefore I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb or Yabreb. But he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So verse 1, you'll notice there is just, again, this, this call to hear. To, it's literally to lend your ear, to, to listen up. You see this sort of a, this multiple, just pay, pay attention, listen to what's being said here. It begins with this more narrow application. In fact, let me get some of these. Uh, this may help. Some of you, I know, have different translations, and so I know it's difficult sometimes to follow when I'm using the New American Standard if you've got another translation. But um, starts out with this, the more narrow application of priest, then sort of broadens out to the sort of totality of the nation with this phrase, O house of Israel, and then kind of then back into a more narrow, O house of the king, or the dynasty of the king, referring to those rulers, most of them that proved to be apostate. 
So the Lord is targeting, if, if you just think of this, the Lord is targeting every level of this sinful society. It's just saying, you know, we're, gonna, we're addressing the, the priests, we're addressing the, the, pot, the general population. We're also talking about those who had a responsibility um, to, to lead in, in government. So we have the, the kings. So nobody falls through the cracks on this. And God exposes the people and their leaders for, uh, you might call it craftiness, wicked craftiness by using this very common biblical imagery of, the, of a trapper or a hunter. And so this is how the Lord describes them. That he describes them as those who are always trying to disguise things, always trying to hide things, always trying to sort of set traps for others. And the Lord is in, in, indicting them for, for doing this, for sort of figuratively using a snare and a net to harm others and to take advantage of, of their neighbors and warns them that the judgment is about to overtake them. So it's just a sort of interesting. He's just saying, this is what you do. Okay, so you, you're, you're crafty and secretive and you're always plotting to take advantage of others and you're always trying to conceal your plans and your strategies. But in the same way that you are trying to take advantage of and sort of sort of sneak up on or to sort of deceive and trap these other people for your own gain, he's saying essentially you're going to be caught in these things. So it's just sort of, he's turning this, this, this imagery around to say, you're setting a trap, but you're falling into mine. The Lord's just saying, you're not going to get away with this. And this is actually consistent with uh, what the scriptures teach about temptation and sin, Proverbs 5.22 his own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. So again, that's this thing you're, thing you're talking about, um, Christy, with, you know, you, you sow and you reap. And so these people are, are in their, it's as if they're taking these cords and this rope and they're forming something, and then that ends up being the very thing that cat, catches them. They dig a pit, they dig a hole for someone else to fall in, and then they, in the process of digging it, <laughs> or standing by and waiting for someone else to fall into it, they fall into it themselves. Proverbs twenty six twenty seven: He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. So here it's like, you see this person, I'm going to roll this big boulder up so that it rolls and lands on someone, but by the time I can get it in place, gravity, I can't hit it, it comes back on me and crushes and kills me. So this, this is a, a common picture in the scriptures about, about that. Um, verse 2, he says, The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. This uh, term depravity uh, can be translated, in fact, the ESV, it's slaughter, uh, but more likely refers to this. It's, it's talking about the quality of really the, their wretchedness. Um, and then the outcome of all of that, he says, I will chastise all of them, or more literally, I will be a chastisement for them. So, God is not going to simply chasten them. He is saying, I am your chastisement. <laughs> so, it's as if, again, the Lord, in the, in the same way that, that we talk about the way in which they sinned against him is very personal, it's as if here he is also personalizing this act of chastising. He's saying, he's saying I'm not just going to, I'm just not going to, do something out here in a roundabout way that's going to, to, uh, to rebuke and correct and, and bring that, that, that uh, sense of correction in your life. He's saying, 
I am your chastisement. So she's saying, I, I am intimately, personally involved in, in this uh, sort of these bringing this indictment, handing down this sentence, and then actually bringing the consequences into their life. Uh, which makes sense, again, because when you read about God's chastisement of his people, if you go to a New Testament passage like Hebrews 12, it's, it's described in terms of fathers and sons. It's a, it's a fatherly thing, right? If a father, if this is a true son, he loves his son and he will discipline his son because he loves him. And so it's, it's, it's tied to these, these intimate relationships. Um, it's the way, the way the scripture speaks about this. And none of these people... Right can escape the Lord's omniscient uh, insights into what's going on. God sees everything. Uh, he knows everything. You'll notice in the beginning of verse 3, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot, and Israel has defiled itself. This uh, person I was talking with this week about this uh, situation, Example illustration I gave you about there's this sort of uh, work-related sort of betrayal thing going on, some dishonesty. Um, what what actually took place there in in the work? Uh, there, there were cameras all in all in this work environment, and and so the the, the individual that I that I talked to and know this that, that of course they knew this, but the but the interesting thing is that all the people involved knew this too. <laughs> so everybody knew that what they were doing was being done, if you will, on camera. And so when this thing sort of came out, that was, of course, a, that was a significant part of gathering the information and actually explaining what happened and getting to the bottom of it was to basically say, you do know that, that there are cameras. <laughs> and so it, was, it wasn't difficult, right? It's like, just watch the video. And so he, he and I got into this conversation just... Again, the, fool, the foolishness, right? The foolishness of the things that we do in our lives thinking the Lord doesn't know. Thinking, that, and it's, it's just like the Lord is just, you do know I have cameras. You know, it's just, like, it's, just, it's, just it's like, I mean, it's, in a you know, spiritual sense, it's just like we just, we don't believe that sometimes. It's like, it's right there. You know, it's like, just as you're doing what you're doing, you know, whatever it is, th- th- thievery or immorality or what, just there's a camera that's right there, right? It's like, it, would you do that? And the sad thing is we do. We do. We, in, even though knowing that our Lord is omniscient, even though knowing that he knows our hearts, we will continue sometimes to do these things. And so he just, he just lets them know, listen, sure, there's lots of high places in Israel, and we're talking about, thousands and thousands of acts of, of, of pagan sacrifice and syncretistic worship and all this stuff. And it's like the Lord saying, I know all of it. I know all of that. I know all those details. Or you might say this way. I imagine it's like the Lord saying, I know Ephraim all too well. You know, I know them all too well. Like, I've been watching them. I know them. I hear them. I, I see these people. I see what they're doing. Nothing escapes the sovereignty of God and the scrutiny of God. Uh, it's, like, it's like the Lord has a spiritual MRI, and the scan reveals that there is a defilement within them. And that's the way he describes it, is that there's this impurity in them. In fact, this is the way they are described if, over in Psalm 106, 
which is really a recounting of Israel's history. So it's not directly focused in on the particular time in which Hosea lived, but this is actually a passage that describes, generally speaking, just the history of the nation and the things that they dealt with. And listen to what it says there. This is uh, Psalm 106, 34. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. This is as they were coming into the promised land. But they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. So again, we have that same imagery there of this trap. They even sacrificed, verse 37, their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. So it's like all that wording, right? I mean, it's all there. It's, it's the idolatry. It's, it's the impurity and the uncleanness. It's, it's playing the harlot in their deeds. It's even bringing in this aspect of that when, when, when you are worshiping the Lord in that, that sort of syncretistic way, which we talked about, is just taking taking unbiblical and, and pagan ideas and practices and importing them into God, into your worship of the Lord. And we all, I would say, we all are guilty of that at some level, right? But these people were, I mean, it's, we're talking about flagrant, blatant uh, idolatry. We're talking about golden caps, okay? We're talking about people, I mean, the things that they're saying, they're literally saying when they go to worship on these high places, that golden calf is what brought us out of Egypt, I mean, that's the, that's, what, that's the how just in your face this stuff is. But again, here, it's, just this, it's saying this, this has been the pattern in Israel's life ever since getting out of Egypt, <laughs> right? This is what they have done. They have, this has been the, their, their struggle. This has been their, their failure time and time and time again. Then we see even more infallible evidences of this apostasy. Verse 4. Back in Hosea 5, their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. And so we've gone, we've talked about this. There's, some, there's different things that they are, in, that they are um, indicted for, and one of them is, that comes up in the, specifically in chapters 5 and 6 is the, this idea of them not knowing the Lord. Um, a, a lack of knowledge, um, and in, in this in this way, they're sort of des- described as those here in verse 4 as, as a people that are bent on wicked deeds. They have this a spirit of prostitution. This is sort of their, just, this is just their mindset. This is just their way of thinking. And consequently, they do not know Yahweh. That is to say that they do not, ag- maybe to better say, they do not acknowledge the Lord. Right? Because we know, if we're just talking about knowledge, like, up here, we know that they had knowledge of God, but they didn't know the Lord. And that just means that they, they did not submit to these things. They might have known them uh, in their heads, but they certainly were not living lives that were in submission to his lordship, not bowing down to him, not submitting to his reign. Verse 5, moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him. So here, again, we have this legal language. The Lord's bringing these indictments. He's bringing all these things, Exhibit A, Exhibit B, Exhibit C. Or like These are all the things that are being brought into the courtroom setting to say Israel is guilty. 
And then it's saying here, almost as if, oh, we have someone that's going to take the stand. Well, what's going to take the stand? Well, the, the flagrant pride of Israel is going to take the stand. <laughs> it's like their own pride is testifying against them. So this is their, the, the pride and the arrogance that's really driving the deeds. So they have all these wicked deeds, but sort of it's just saying underneath that, from a, from a heart, at a heart level, from a motivation standpoint, it's pride and arrogance that's driving it. And he says that the second half there, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. And so this is the idea, this, when you, this particular term of, of stumbling has the idea of being overthrown. And so they're going to be overthrown in their iniquity, not only Israel, but then he tags on here, this is also going to happen. It's not going to happen at the same time, but it's going to happen in time for the southern kingdom as well. And so he mentions Judah. There would be respective captivities concerning both the northern and the southern kingdoms. You'll have in the uh, northern kingdoms by Assyria in 722 uh, B.C., and then in the southern kingdom, Again, we mentioned this sort of in three increments or phases beginning in 605 B.C. by, by Babylon. So even, even though they were m- making these efforts at um, sort of this pseudo-worship, it wasn't really true worship. It was this, this syncretistic worship that God had said time and time again was unacceptable, uh, detestable to him. And so he says here in verse 6, they will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. So he's just saying they will go with their sheep, they will go with their bulls to worship and to seek Yahweh, but their search will be an elusive search. They're not going to find him there. Uh, in fact, this, this is similar uh, this is over in second. Let's listen to Second Chronicles fifteen. This actually is a the prophet Azariah. This is in a uh, sort of a different different context, but but it's just, it kind of deals with the same same dynamic here. Uh, the prophet Az, Az, Azariah warns King Asa, and it says in Second Chronicles fifteen, verse one. Now the spirit of the Lord, spirit of God, came on Azariah the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you. Now listen to, this, listen to how he says this. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law, but in their distress they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him and he let them find him. (laughs) So it's like, I mean, the Lord doesn't have to let you find him. I mean, again, you are concealing, think think of the irony here, these people are concealing their sin from an omniscient God. Right. You know, it's like, it's like they're hiding their sin from a God who knows and sees everything. And the, but then God's going to say, I'm going to hide myself. 
and you're not going to find me. It's like, you do a terrible job of covering things up. You and I do a terrible job of hiding things from God. We can't do that. But the Lord can and does sometimes say, I'm not going to let you find me. And there, folks, there is nothing you can do to discover him. If the Lord decides that he's not going to allow you to find him, you can search and search and search, and you're not going to find him. What seems to be the key here is, right, humility. When he says those who seek, because you notice the, 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 in Hosea, it says they will go to seek the Lord, but they won't find him. But in the Chronicles passage, he says, if you seek me, I will let you find me. So there's got to be something in the seeking. There has to be some kind of a, a qualitative difference between one passage and the other. And the issue seems to be a, a sincerity of heart, a, a genuine uh, a motive to worship the Lord as he's prescribed, right? Not your idea of what that looks like, but what the way God has said you're to worship him, right? And so there's this true heartfelt seeking the Lord and, uh, and this, this desire to come under his authority and to honor him for who he is and his character and his nature and all those things. And so here he says, listen, you do that, you seek me in that way, you cry out to me, you turn to me in your distress, and I will let you do that. But if you forsake me, I would say parenthetically, if you forsake me, parentheses, in your heart, parentheses, then you may go seeking me, but you won't find me. So outwardly, you may still go to the high place. You may still go with your your bull. You may still go with your lamb or whatever. But if in your heart you have forsaken him, he will forsake you. And he knows if you're playing games or not, right? I mean, he has that ability to know. And so he says here in verse 6, listen, you're going to go, you're going to do that, but you're not going to find, you're not going to find the Lord because he has withdrawn himself. So the Lord is, is not going to reward that kind of pseudo-worship. He is just not, not going to do it. In fact, it, it reminds us of that, um, uh, that time in King Saul's life in 1 Samuel 15. You remember when you know, Samuel went to Saul and, and corrected him because Saul was not fully obedient to what the Lord told him to do. And yet, Saul's saying, I did obey God, right? In fact, this is what he says in, in, in that passage. He says, Saul says to Samuel in verse 20, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of, of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, the people took, you know, see here he starts to justify, here he goes. But the people took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, Oh, but it's okay because they did it to sacrifice to the Lord their God, right? So they saved, they spared some of these animals so that they could bring a sacrifice. There's only one problem with that, and that's that the Lord said, don't do that, right? Don't leave anything. But they did, and so here's Saul sort of trying to rationalize that. And then you'll this very well-known passage, verse 22, Samuel said... Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. 
there's our idol issue coming up again. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Right? So there, there it is again. It's a sense of the Lord saying, if that's the hard attitude, I'll just, I'll just back off. You know, I'll just pull away. And then what happened from this point on, right? Isn't this what happened in Saul's life? It was just like he didn't have the Lord's favor and blessing from that point on. Why? Because he didn't obey God even though he claimed to make sacrifice. So very, very, very similar ideas there and lessons for us. The sacrifice is meaningless if there's an absence of obedience. Right? That's the lesson. The sacrifice is meaningless if there is an absence of obedience. You must obey the Lord. That has to be part of this. Again, another charge, just uh, verse 7. So back to Hosea 5, 7. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord. I went to the end. Yeah, verse 7. Uh, they have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have, been, they have born illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land. This, of course, is referring back to the illustration of Gomer and her prostitution and the resulting children from her infidelities. The, the Lord's just saying they have, they have betrayed him, and for that, there will be a tailor-made judgment in which their new moon festivals or celebrations will lead to their land or you could not say their portions or their allotments, maybe their tribal allotments being essentially gobbled up. That's what's going to happen. All these things are going to be, again, this is all pointing towards that ultimate judgment of the Assyrian invasion. Then the Lord takes up the roles here of judge and jury, beginning in verse 8. Get to that here. Cut that up here. Uh, Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound an alarm in Beth Aven, behind you, Benjamin. So here it's as if the Lord goes on a taunt. It gets into this taunt mode. That, that, and it's trying to say here that they will, they will not be able to protect themselves against what is coming because the Lord is behind it. So it, the Lord's just saying, these, these judgments are going to come, and the Assyrians are coming, but there's nothing that you can do to prevent that from happening because it, behind the Assyrians, if you will, the Lord's behind that, right? And so he, he is the one that is doing just as he desires, accomplishing his purposes. There is no way out. There's no way to, to hide yourself from that, to shield yourself from that. He mentions here this trumpet blowing, this horn. And um, there were basically, this is a shofar. This is, this, is a, this is an example of one. You may have seen one of these. But this, these were used basically in the, in the scriptures in two, two primary ways. One of them was used in the context of worship. And so they would use in Israel, in their worship celebrations, they would, involving the tabernacle or the temple, they would use this, blow this Horn as a way to sort of announce these celebrations or announce these holidays and even, and even brought them into the actual worship, if you will, worship services themselves. That was one purpose of them. And the other purpose was signifying the beginning of war. And so this was, they would use this to, to signify the start of a war or in a way to sort of rally the troops. Okay? And so what I think is going on here is he's just saying... These cities of Gibeah and Ramat, these were defensive strongholds, right? These were key cities in Israel defending themselves. And so it's like he's saying, 
go ahead and blow your trumpets. Go ahead and assemble your armies. Assemble your troops. Go ahead and call upon this group and go ahead and call upon that help, whatever. But it's not going to help because it is God who is against you. So it's all going to be in vain. And so it's sort of this, he's just sort of taunting them saying, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> if, you th- if you think you can escape this judgment, d- then just blow your horn. Just blow it. Just toot it. Blow that horn. Get your troops. Signal that war is beginning, but it's, it's, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. Verse 9, Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke among the tribes of Israel. I declare what is sure. So the Lord says, what I'm declaring to the tribes of Israel will certainly take place. She will become a wasteland. She will be emptied in the day when God chastens, chastens them and corrects them. And everyone will be standing by and, and mocking them. And then in verse uh, 10, the Lord also brings an indictment, again, Judah. So he brings Judah back into the picture here. The princes of Judah have become like those who, have, who move a boundary. Uh, on them I will pour out my wrath like... Water and so the princes of Judah have become like those he says who have, who move move the boundary markers, which doesn't sound like a big deal to us. It's like oh, so a big deal, right? So you move the line, you move the boundary marker. But this was something very significant. Uh, it pops up in Scripture in several places, but all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter twenty-seven, we have this. It's basically in all the curses, right? This is before they're going in to uh, to the land. Moses is charging. The people on that day saying, and then he gives them these things. The curses that will come. Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, and the works of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. So you have these, these, this chanting as he's going through these curses. Cursed is he who dishonors his father and mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. And then after that... So it goes from idolatry, gross idolatry, dishonoring parents. Next verse. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark. <laughs> and all the people shall say, Amen. Right? And so what they would do is they would set up piles of stones as they would use these things as boundary markers or, or if you will, property lines between tribes and families. And so someone would, and typically at night, it was easy to do this, but they would move those stones, and in a sense, shrinking their neighbor's property, right, and increasing their own. So they're expanding their, their property while shrinking their neighbors. And this is similar to what the princes of Judah were doing. And I think it's just saying they were taking advantage of others. They were injuring their neighbor, increasing their own worth, their own influence while hurting those who were helpless and sometimes weak. Oftentimes, these kind of things would happen against widows, and those who were disadvantaged. And so um, there's, again, just all kinds of warnings about doing that. And so I think what's, what's happening here is that rather than taking the warning, rather than Judah taking the warning of impending disaster that was coming upon the northern tribes, the northern kingdom, Judah sought to gain an enlargement of their own borders during that time. So it's like, rather than Judah having compassion on Israel, think about this. Okay, so God's saying, judgment's coming, and Judah is standing there going, 
this would be a good time to move the... You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like, it, rather than grieving over the fact that this, this, these are... Remember, at one point, this was one nation, right? It, rather than, than looking out for these other tribes and rather than being grieved by what's coming upon the northern tribes, they're thinking about how they can make the most of this, right? Assyria is going to come in and guess what? While all that's going on, it'd be a good time for us to move the rocks, right? <laughs> to move the boundary. And so I think that it's just, it's just a sense of there, there is absolutely no compassion among the people of God, right? And that's what sin does. Sin hardens us, folks. It just, it makes us, it, 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 it dries up that fountain of mercy that we ought to have for other people. It's like when we're in sin, we don't show mercy to people. We're not thinking about showing mercy. We're thinking about what we can get, right? And so Judah, rather than, than thinking about those warnings that, about that Israel was receiving, they're looking to enlarge their own borders, and the Lord, the Lord says, I will pour out my, it's, it's, it's a word here, just, it's just rage. I will pour out my rage on them like in water. This is actually the term used at the flood. So it's not like I'm going to pour out my water on them, right? Or like give them a cup of water. You could translate this as, I will pour out my rage on them like a torrential flood. Right, we're talking about floodwaters. Okay, it's the day of the Lord language. Is really well, you'll find this in other passages in the Old Testament that refer to the day of the Lord, that great day of judgment. So we'll we'll actually tap into that a little bit as we, we get further into Hosea. But the Lord's fury is going to cascade down because of His holiness. He will He will judge not only Israel, but He will also judge. Judah, and then he, the focus turns back to Ephraim, verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to follow man's command. Is that what I've got up here? Man's command. Yeah, right here. So verse 11, right here, man's command. Who has an ESV? Read, uh, Matt, read that for us, just that verse. Verse 11. Go out, so filth, all right. Well, anybody else have a different translation there? Nothingness. Okay, so there is a little bit of a, there's some, some discussion about this, this, this last word um, in, in this particular phrase. But uh, I think what, uh, uh, what's going on here is just saying that the Ephraim, Ephraim is, is being judged because of course, their, their covenant disobedience. Going back again, we could go back to Deuteronomy 28, and we could see, again, these, uh, these curses that were uh, going to come upon them for their disobedience. But uh, he talks about this, verse, verse uh, 32, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. So this, again, they're just talking about their future. This is going to happen even as early as Deuteronomy. These things are being prophesied. While your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. A people whom you do not know shall eat up the produce of your ground and all your labors, and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. Same, same wording. You shall be driven mad by the sight of what you see. The Lord will strike you on the knees and legs with sore boils from which you cannot be healed. 
from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head, the Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation which neither nor you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. So there's a concept of idolatry. Verse 37, you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. This is what would come upon Ephraim because the people followed the command. The command here, I think, is the command of Jeroboam. We talked about this early on in Hosea. But it was that initial command of Jeroboam who encouraged this idolatry. You remember Jeroboam was the one that told them to, 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 to set up these primary places of worship, Bethel and Dan. He is the one who set up the high places and the house and the priest, and he's the one that had them make the two golden calves and all of these things. Of course, he was doing it all for self-preservation, right? He didn't want the people to think they had to go to Jerusalem. He was trying to set up alternative forms of worship so that they wouldn't do that. And it says that he devised these things in his own heart and, and did it for this reason, right? To protect his, his own rule and reign. But when he did that, that is something that the kings that followed him in the north continued to do. But he was the one that sort of initially commanded that, put that out there as this is the way we're going to do this. And most of those people that came after him just sort of followed, fell in line with that. And so that's the command that, that I think he's referring to. And so Ephraim was determined, he says, to pursue worthless idols. And Judah was guilty of dishonesty and greed and, again, pride her, uh, himself, taking advantage of the situation. Their apostasy is clear, verse 12, therefore... The Lord says, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. It's as if the Lord is saying, I am consuming the northern tribes little by little. And I am like wood rot to the house of Judah. She says, I did the deterioration. Both of those, those uh, both north and south, were just gradually, gradually, gradually going deeper and deeper and deeper into their, their sin and rebellion. Which, again, the, the chastening here should have driven them to repent, but it actually ended up driving them in the opposite direction. And they ended up looking for help from others rather than the Lord. So verse 13, it says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb, but he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. Wound. So there seems to be this window of time when Ephraim and Judah recognized there was a problem. <laughs> and again, that in and of itself is the mercy of God. They saw their own condition, but they did not respond appropriately. And rather than looking to the Lord, they looked to Jareb, which isn't a proper name, but it's, but it's, a, it's a term applied to the king of Assyria. It, it means he, he who contends, or he will contend, he will plead the cause. This is what Israel was guilty of, right? They would turn to, it in some cases, Egypt. At other times, they would turn to Assyria or make a deal with Assyria to keep them at bay, such as uh, King Menahem was one of the last kings in the northern, uh, of the northern tribes in Israel. And 2 Kings 15 talks about um, how he did this, how he went to Assyria and paid money to them to sort of sa- satisfy them and keep them, keep them at bay. But it was all 
It was all in vain. Ephraim's sinful action in relying upon an Assyrian treaty for protection would not dispense with its problems. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, I am he, this is the Lord speaking, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. And that's what's going on here. So we're just saying, you have a wound. Yes, it has been caused by your idolatry, and yes, I gave it to you. It's like, in other words, there's culpability, right? They are culpable for what they've done, but again, God has withdrawn. He's allowed that to play out, and they're suffering the consequences of that. And he's saying, in a sense, I have wounded you. And guess what? If you're going to be healed, guess who's going to have to do that? I'm going to be the one to do that. I wound you and I heal you. So God's, again, just stressing his control over all this because he is the ultimate protector. And in this case, he is the ultimate predator. That's why we see this in verse 14. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I even I will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. We don't have time to, to go there, but it's interesting over in Nahum. Nahum describes the downfall of Nineveh. And it does it using this language about lions because the, the Assyrians had a fetish for lions. They went on lion hunts. In fact, you can go to the, the, from the north palace of Nineveh in, in, the, in the 7th century B.C. These are reliefs that they found there. So this, was, this lion idea was used by the Assyrians as if we're the ones. We're the lion. But notice here, in this case, who's it applied to? The Lord. Saying, actually... They do, Assyria will serve that purpose, but really, I am the king of the jungle. <laughs> it's like, I am the ultimate predator. And so he says he's going to be like a lion, a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces, go away, I will carry away, there will be none to deliver. He's just saying that, uh, in a sense, it, it's, I guess you, I think of it as like Romans 8. Romans eight thirty one. Paul says that God is for us. And if that is true, no one can successfully be against us. But the reverse is also true. If God is against an individual or a nation by virtue of their sin, then no one can successfully be for that person or nation. And so, when, if God is for us, no one can be against us. But if God is against us, then it doesn't really matter what, who we bring to our side to help. Again, it's going to be going to be a futile thing. And then verse 15, notice what the Lord declares, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So he's saying, I I will tear them to pieces and rip them apart in judgment. And then I will return to, you say, my place. I think you could put in in that, instead of that, you say my lair. Because it's it's still bringing that lion imagery in. I will tear them to pieces in judgment, and then I'll return to my lair to digest everything that has been accomplished in judgment. But again, the ultimate purpose is not to extinguish his people of covenant promise. Because what does he say? I will return to my place until. Until. Until they confess their culpability. 
until they truly seek me, right? Not that shallow seeking where the Lord says, hey, if you do that, I'm, I'm not, you're not going to find me, but a true, humble, dependent seeking of the Lord. That is when this is, again, that's that glimmer of hope. We keep seeing it, and by the time we get to the end of Hosea, it's going to be full-blown. So what do we do with all that? Well, again, for, for our lives, right, Romans 15 says we need to hear that. We need to and be instructed by it, right? This should profit us as New Testament Christians. We should learn from it. The two things that stand out to me, one, God's absolute, absolute knowledge of sin. So if, you were gonna, if I were going through here, I would, this is what I would circle. Verse 3, I know. Verse 9, this is the other thing that sort of jumps out. The absolute certainty of God's predicted judgment for their sin. When God determines he's going to chasten them, there is nothing they can do to, keep, to prevent that from happening other than well, true repentance, right? But he says at the end of verse 9, I declare what is sure which is very similar to that language in Isaiah of, I declare what's going to happen. I declare the, the, end, the end from the beginning. I'm the one that is accomplishing my will. And if God is merciful enough to allow us to see our own sickness or our own wound, the warning here for us is that we, we need to repent, not turn to other things to bail us out. Because sometimes, folks, what we do in those moments, we turn to a million other things at that intersection rather than just humbling ourselves before the Lord. And we'll go talk to other... We'll, we'll, we'll spend hours and, and thousands of words talking to other people about our problems and not actually go to the Lord and say, Lord, this is... I, I know this, has been, this is what's been going on. I need you. Please forgive. It's like they won't take that to the Lord, but they'll take those problems to so many other people and, and do so many other things with that that just puts them in a, leaves them in a position where the chastening hand of the Lord is just, it's just going to be unavoidable in their life. So we need to heed that. When, when the Lord does that, when he's gracious enough to open your eyes to something in your life that you need to confess and repent of, don't, don't miss that opportunity. Don't let that pass you by. Be grateful for that and do the right thing, right? Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord with all your heart. Okay, folks, we'll stop there.